If you have a copy of God's Word, we'll begin our time in the book of John today, John chapter 3, if you want to head that way. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one if you'd like one. We have some available at the Connect table in the back of the room this morning. Um, And if you would like to follow along with a tablet, your smartphone, whatever else, that's great. We'll also have the words for you on the screen. Uh, Today is week three of our series called Welcome Home. This is the last week of this series. We don't usually do series this short, uh, but we really only needed to address three topics, so we took three weeks to to do that. Uh, You heard in the video today, even if this is your first week with us in the last three weeks, uh, three terms defined. And so I want to start this morning by showing you those terms again, giving you those definitions, because we need to share an understanding of what it is that I mean when I use terms like hospitality or generosity or stewardship in order to understand what we're talking about. So first, I'll talk to you about hospitality. This is where we began two weeks ago. Um, We defined hospitality as showing mercy to our neighbors by sharing our domestic rhythms. So if you're a note taker, that's going to stay on the screen for a few minutes. You can write that down. To zoom out just a little bit here and remind you what we're trying to accomplish in this series, um, I'm trying to help you understand ways that, in the New Testament, Jesus has instructions for, expectations for his people uh, that connect person to person. They connect people who are following Jesus with people who are not following Jesus, rather, whether they think they are and they're not, or they are running from God on purpose, or they've never gotten close enough to the church to really know who Jesus is. And so, categorically, looking at hospitality, uh, we said that this is a great way that Jesus has provided us with lots of examples of in the New Testament, of how to connect our lives as followers of Jesus to those who maybe have never actually experienced the real Jesus or his church, people we might refer to as unchurched or lost, to use Jesus' word, uh, the marginalized. We said two weeks ago that not only does hospitality connect us with the unchurched, but it also uniquely calls attention to what Jesus is offering a person who is unchurched. That as we invite a person like that into community, around a table, into a, a setting of belonging, we are communicating to them that Jesus is offering them that in an eternal sense. What we can do is only temporal. We can only help a person for a little while, but we get them close so that we can introduce them to Jesus and that they can ultimately find a seat at his table by way of repentance. Last week, we talked about generosity. We defined generosity as participating in the future of another by giving without reciprocity, giving without getting anything in return. And generosity functions the same way in the life of those who have been near to Jesus in their past but have now walked away as hospitality does to those who have never been close to Christ or his church. People who maybe have intentionally created distance between themselves and the church because of an experience, because of pain, because of abuse or misuse on behalf of a pastor or someone else who claimed Christ as their savior. These are the kinds of people who we might refer to not as unchurched, they have some experience, they may have been churched to use that term, but maybe de-churched would be the word here folks who have willingly, intentionally, and and probably for somewhat of a good reason, stepped away from the life of the church. People who got close enough to be following Jesus to get hurt by people who said that they were. And so we said last week that generosity connects us to the de-churched and, just like hospitality does this for the unchurched, generosity calls the de-churched back into a setting that they really desperately want to be a part of, that Jesus is offering them love, he's offering them care, that there's an opportunity to find healing that they can have purpose and that they can have access to Jesus directly and all without strings attached. That's what we mean when we say without reciprocity. Today we're going to look at stewardship. We define stewardship this way. 
to cultivate creation as image bearers to the creator. So because we bear the image of God as human beings, and then even more than that, because we bear the image of the firstborn of the new creation, Jesus Christ, we have a responsibility to be cultivating life in the lives of other people. And stewardship is going to connect us to our third category of person, whereas we've already dealt with the unchurched, we've dealt last week with the dechurched. this week we're going to deal with a category of people whom I will call the religiously established. People who are practicing something, and they're doing it rigorously, and they're doing it aggressively, and they're doing it consistently, but it is itself devoid of Jesus, the presence of the Spirit of God in their life. Stewardship is different from hospitality and generosity because there's a huge difference in the attitude and worldview of a person who is religiously established compared to those who are unchurched or dechurched. Whereas when you deal with a person who is unchurched or you deal with a person who's dechurched, they'll at least be honest with you, typically. They may be so honest that that makes you really uncomfortable and kind of breaks the categories of how you normally have polite Christian conversation with your friends, but they'll tell you the truth. And in my experience, when people like that come to meet Jesus, they make the absolute best disciples because they are all in, whereas they used to be all out. However, the religiously established find a way, a human way, to straddle the wall between the world and God's kingdom and to walk that line for their whole life, and it can be almost impossible at times to communicate with a person like that about their need for Jesus. So thankfully, Jesus does some of that in the scriptures. Before we can get into the idea of stewardship as evangelism, to call back to two weeks ago, that word that we're trying to interact with, how do we tell people the good news of Jesus? We need to establish that there actually are religious people who actually do still need Jesus. So that brings us to John chapter 3. In John chapter 3, Jesus has a meeting with a man whose name is Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a part of a group of people called the Pharisees. John will tell us that right out of the gate when we get to these verses. And because of that, Nicodemus was directly opposed to the teaching of Jesus, even if he didn't know it yet. As Jesus' ministry would continue to grow in scope, in scale, in effectiveness, he would become more and more and more offensive to the established religious leaders of his day, to the point that they eventually got so mad at Jesus that they killed him. That's the thing that drove the Jewish people to murder Jesus Christ, was that his teaching was too paradigm-shifting for them. It was too much for them to comprehend and handle. So in this particular story, a man named Nicodemus comes to Jesus early in his ministry. Jesus has only done one miracle at this point, and he comes at nighttime, which I think is very interesting and a specific detail that the Bible gives us on purpose. I believe Nicodemus is here to meet with Jesus without anybody else finding out, without it challenging Nicodemus' religious reputation. Let's hear now Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus, John chapter 3, verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees who was named Nicodemus. And he was a ruler of the Jews, so he has religious and ethnic responsibility and uh, weight in his community. Maybe those are some of the reasons why verse 2 tells us that he came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, or teacher, we know, we the Pharisees know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Then here's Jesus' response to Nicodemus. He says, truly, truly, or I'm telling you the truth, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So Nicodemus wants to have a conversation with Jesus about how talented Jesus is, how maybe he has a lot of potential in the religious establishment. Maybe Nicodemus is coming to recruit Jesus to be a Sunday school teacher or to join his residency at his church or to be an apprentice in his ministry so that eventually they can launch Jesus and he can go do his own thing. That's probably Nicodemus' perspective here. Older than Jesus, he thinks he's wiser than Jesus. 
Jesus immediately throws that script out and goes right to the heart of the issue and says to him again, unless you are born a second time, Nicodemus, you will never see the kingdom of God, which is deeply offensive to Nicodemus, who would tell you and I, if we were standing in the room, that his life put him on a trajectory where he was guaranteed to enter into the kingdom of God. And now this upstart rabbi from the middle of nowhere is telling him that he has to be born a second time, a concept you and I are familiar with. Nicodemus has never heard this before. So he answers Jesus in verse 4. He says, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and then be born? So he's just trying to figure this thing out. He's like, look, I get that you did the miracle. Maybe you're not the rabbi that I thought you were. What are you talking about? You want me to find my mother? I'm not doing that. Jesus answers him, verse 5. He says, truly I say to you, unless a person is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Cannot. Not might not. Not has a higher probability of doing this. He says it's impossible. Jesus has the authority to tell a religious man, you're not going to make it in unless you're born of water and the Spirit. Why? Verse 7. Or excuse me, verse 6. He says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That's you, Nicodemus, your flesh. But that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Nicodemus is a very religious man. You and I would probably pretty comfortably use the label good person for him. You would say he's a good guy. Uh, even if you don't like his personality as a hyper-religious person, we would probably admit that he's living his life decently well, at least externally. Nicodemus is the kind of person who would be on time for temple worship every week in his community. He would probably get there early. Nicodemus would arrive to the temple in time to check his kids into their kids' classes. He would probably help with setup a little bit, and he would even be in the room with enough time to sing all four songs. Some of y'all didn't even know we sing four songs. You were like, that's how many we do. Okay, so early enough, yeah. Nicodemus says the right things. He gives his money to the temple at the right time. He does it in a way where people can see him, so he gets plenty of credit for that. Uh, he says his prayers, he reads his Bible, his Old Testament scriptures, and he sounds like a good guy overall. I mean, he would roughly fit into our community here, though he might be a little more formal than some of us. So why, when we read John 3, and this man comes to Jesus by night, by cover of darkness, to try to interact with Jesus, why is Jesus immediately so confrontational to tell this guy, you're never going to make it into God's kingdom? I mean, good grief, like that feels like people standing on a street corner with a big sign that says repent or burn a little bit, doesn't it? I mean, it's more personal because it's in the setting of a home at nighttime, but goodness, Jesus goes right for the heart of the issue. What would Jesus know about a man like Nicodemus, a person that he's just met like seconds before as this guy entered into the home where Jesus and his disciples are staying that would give him the authority to say to him, you need to start all the way over. We don't need to adjust the path that you're on. This isn't a fork in the road where you make a choice for good or evil. You need to be born a second time, Nicodemus. You're an old man now. You need to become a young infant spiritually and grow. Because Nicodemus is a Pharisee. That's what this boils down to. The affiliative party, the culture that Pharisees were a part of, the religious standing they had, the political standing, the ethnic standing, they represented something to Jesus. And for that reason, because Jesus has a lot of issues with the Pharisees, he's able to look at a man named Nicodemus who's living just like a Pharisee would, sneaking off to a meeting at nighttime so that it doesn't have to damage his reputation to be seen with Jesus. And Jesus addresses his heart. He deals with the lack of sufficiency that Nicodemus' religiosity offers him. In other words, Nicodemus has done a lot of good things. Jesus doesn't denounce any of those things, and I'm not here to do that either. But he looks Nicodemus in the face and he says there's something left to do. 
there's still some work to be done, and it's not actually work that you can do. If we were to go on and read the rest of John chapter 3, the most famous verse in the Bible is John 3.16. It's Jesus speaking to Nicodemus and saying, I came to save you from yourself. Jesus makes a call back to the book of Numbers, the idea of a serpent being held up on a pole. Jesus says, so too the Son of Man has to be held up, and any who would look to him can be saved. Jesus isn't just there to pick on Nicodemus. He offers him a solution, but it starts with a very candid conversation about how unable Nicodemus is to enter into God's kingdom on his own. Just to help you understand some of the issues Jesus has with the Pharisees in general, the hyper-religious people of his day, I would ask you to just hear these verses from Luke chapter 11. You don't have to turn there. You probably don't have enough time for you to do that today. Jesus is teaching in Luke eleven thirty seven, And while he was speaking, a Pharisee, same kind of guy as Nicodemus, asked Jesus to come over to eat with him. And so Jesus went in and he reclined at the table. The Pharisee was astonished or shocked, you could even say appalled, that Jesus did not first wash himself before he ate dinner with them. So then Jesus, as he often does, answers that inner thought that that Pharisee has, and turns to this group of people who are in the room who are Pharisees themselves. And he said, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're full of greed. Inside you are full of wickedness. You fools. That's harsh language in Bible talk. Did he not, excuse me, did not he who made the outside of you, Jesus is implying, also make the inside of you? So then, verse 41, give as alms those things that are within. And behold, everything will become clean to you. In other words, spend less time trying to clean up all of this that everybody can see and let's deal with the heart and then everything else will come after it. He goes on in verse 42 and he says, but woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe on mint and rue and every herb. Just take a second and consider how much work it would be to weigh a leaf of mint, figure out what 10% of that is, cut it off just right, and then give that to the temple. What is the temple going to do with 10% of a leaf of mint? Do you know what I'm saying? But these guys are in love with the law. They're so serious about getting everything right, they've missed the point. Jesus goes on, he says, you've instead neglected justice and the love of God. These, you should have done, the the tithing. You should be serious about wanting to do that, but you should do so without neglecting the others. Don't justify a lack of justice. Don't justify a lack of love by holding up and waving your law-abidingness in God's face. God sees through it. It's not one or the other. Take the whole law seriously or don't. Verse 43, so Jesus says again to them, woe to you. You love the best seat in the synagogues and you love to be greeted in the marketplace. Jesus isn't picking on people who like to wave and say hello. He's saying you appreciate the acknowledgement that happens when you walk through the city. You like that people know you. You like that people think you're holy. You like that you have a reputation for being better than other people. That's your reward. That's what makes you feel good. So woe to you. And this is harsh. For you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. In other words, you don't look like a graveyard, but internally there's a dead person inside. That's what's going on with you Pharisees. How can Jesus say this? Well, he's aware of the external religiosity of the Pharisees, and this includes Nicodemus. Jesus could confidently say to Nicodemus, you have to start your life all the way over and be born again spiritually based only on the hyper-religious culture of the Pharisees. Because the metrics of success for the religiously established in Jesus' day are the same, pardon me, are the same metrics of success that the religiously established use today. People who represent the religious establishment, people who are participating in a religious system instead of knowing Jesus, being defined by his mercy, these people believe that their external lives are the only lives that matter, and they neglect the heart, what the Bible calls the inner person. In the Old and New Testaments, both hundreds of times that that's what God is about and after, 
but it's an afterthought to people like this. They believe, yes, that the heart is wicked, but in order to counterbalance the wickedness of the heart, it's not that they need an infusion of God's mercy, but instead that they need to find a way to live with a kind of external righteousness, and that will counterbalance the wickedness of their hearts. This is what Jesus means when he tells the Pharisees, you are clean on the outside, but filthy on the inside, like a used bowl. You are an unmarked grave that people think is doing just fine, but in reality contains a dead person. So if it's not clear to you, Jesus is looking the most religiously successful group of people in human history right in the eye, and he's communicating to them that they are dead inside. So let that establish the reality for you that even religious people like Nicodemus desperately need Jesus. So what happens? If this is a conversation about evangelism, what happens when your life, when my life, the lives of people who love Jesus, who want to live according to his way because of their abiding relationship with him, what happens when we cross paths with the religious establishment? What most of us would like to do is just ignore it or speak against it or destroy it or run away from it or ignore it and let it die its slow death on its own. But there's a reason that Jesus continues to go back into the houses of Pharisees and eat with them. He continues to go back into places where the Pharisees are standing and speak with them. Yes, he condemns their lifestyle. Jesus never speaks more harshly than he does with those who have established themselves in religion. But all the while, he is calling them to repentance. So if I can make it even more personal than that, because maybe you're thinking of somebody who lives really far away from you that you would never encounter in real life. What do you do, church, when you meet a person who, just like you, worships at a church on Sunday, who, just like you, owns probably more than one Bible, who attends a small group, who prays once in a while, who gives financially to the church, but in spite of all of those things, still appears to be dead on the inside? What do you do with a person like that? Many of us wash our hands and say, well, it's between them and God, so they'll just have to figure it out. I don't know. Anytime I try to talk to them about Jesus, they just say all the same words that I say, and they act like they have all the same categories I have, and so I have no idea what to do, so I'll just let them be backwards, and maybe that's enough. Maybe God will save them, and that'll be enough for them. I think that you and I have a call from Jesus. If we're going to follow him, then we have to be responsible to interact with people who we would probably prefer not to interact with. And for some of us, we would prefer not to interact with those we've talked about the last two weeks, right? The unchurched, the dechurched, that's uncomfortable. That makes our skin crawl a little bit. But for many of us, the idea of willingly approaching a person who is deeply religious but does not know Jesus, that's the end of the spectrum we don't want to go to. That's what we're afraid of. Those are the people who maybe have hurt us. Those are the people who drove us away from whatever we might label as fundamentalism or whatever other version of Christianity they lived that we thought this can't be what it's all about. But we have to. We have to follow Jesus back towards those people. And I believe that it begins with stewardship. It begins not with fighting with them. It begins not with being able to disprove them. It certainly doesn't happen by us just waiting around for a generation of people to die who we disagree with. No. We are responsible to follow Jesus and to try to cultivate life in the life of a person who seems to be dead on the inside. Cultivating life in the religiously established will be our method if we want to connect with them, but it's also the appeal that we make. It's the only grounds we have for argument. A person who's dead on the inside knows that they're dead on the inside. They've just decided to live in a way where they fit in with a bunch of people who've set up this standard of external living where they can still have community, they can still participate in church, they can still feel good about themselves, but they go home and have the same self-loathing that anybody else does. So we're probably not going to make it through to them by outthinking them, by outmaneuvering them. We're going to make it through to a person like that, connect with them by appealing to life in Jesus. 
That is a thing that empty religion cannot provide for a person like that. A person who's tried to live according to God's will externally, what we want is for them to be made alive internally. We want to introduce religious people to the Jesus whom they have been trying so hard to impress from a distance. Sometimes it's a bit like a junior high dance. And there's a whole bunch of people on the wall trying to do whatever it is that they think Jesus wants them to do, hoping that maybe eventually they'll catch his eye and he'll come over and something will change. We get to be the chaperone who walks over and goes, hey, it'd be a lot easier if you just talk to him. It's just, come on, let's just walk, come on, come on over, walk over here. See, Jesus, this is, this is Philip, Philip, this is Jesus. Jesus would be like, awesome, I love you, how are you? What can I do? What's new? But unfortunately for a lot of people, they keep that arm's length. They have maybe a misunderstanding of what it means for God to be holy, and they don't get that Jesus the Christ bridges the gap between God and man in a way that we can enter into literally God's throne room as we pray. And so they just stay away, and they just do a lot of Christian-y things, and they never actually know Jesus. And we believe that there's more for them than that. That's what I think Jesus wants for Nicodemus. It's the reason that he appeals to Nicodemus to be born again. That's a life-giving experience. I want to give you life, but you're going to have to be born to enter into it, just like you did when you were born the first time. Stewardship is how we participate in that for the sake of the religious people who we know and love. We defined stewardship earlier as cultivating creation as image bearers to the creator, and in the lives of the religious, stewardship cultivates their humanity. Religious people are afraid of their humanity showing. Did you know that? They almost try to become inhuman, probably more than anything else. They fear other people's messy choices, certainly, those messy choices splattering onto them, but at least they can mitigate the risk of that by controlling who they're around and deciding not to bump up against people who are messy. Instead, when a person who's deeply religious finds that they cannot limit the exposure of their own humanity, they freak out. They just disappear. This is the kind of person who comes to church forever and ever and ever, and then one thing goes wrong and you never see them again, and they won't call you back. And there's no way to reconnect because to them, they failed. And if they failed, they don't fit anymore. Which tells me that the foundation of their relationship with the church is not mercy. It's not grace. It's performance-based for them. We believe Jesus can set people free from that. The way that we cultivate humanity in the religious is by demonstrating how Jesus' way is different. How it's better than whatever they have going on. And so what I want to do for you quickly is I want to identify two patterns that I believe in the Western church have led to the over-religification, if you'll let me make a word up today, of the Western church. Two ideas here. Here's number one. This is a problem. We don't know the Bible and we don't care. You could say, well, that's two problems. It is, but it's really one problem married together. We just don't. We don't really know the Bible and it doesn't really bother us that bad. Because we all have one, we carry one around probably on our cell phone everywhere that we go, and we just don't look at it that much. We don't think about it that much. It doesn't, we don't have any sense of urgency. There's no willing submission to the Spirit to understand God's Word in its totality and its context. We just kind of get an hour of it a week and feel pretty good about that and kind of go, well, God, I showed up, so if there was a thing you wanted me to know, you should have told me then. That's when I had time. We meet on Sundays. I'll see you then again. Two. We are spiritually either unformed, most of us younger people, or malformed, formed the wrong way, some of us who might be a little older. These are two major problems that I think have led to the over-religiousness of the Western church. It's become so married to and obsessed with ceremony and rites and rituals and has not a lot of care for the Christ himself. So let me tap into that first idea that we don't know the Bible and we don't care. I believe that the religious learn the Bible as a set of principles first. This is their lens through which they view God's word. They read the scriptures only for instruction, and they tend to pick up most of their Christian concepts, not actually from the Bible itself, but from interpreters, people like preachers or radio show hosts or TV personalities, frankly, some of whom aren't even Christians and don't claim to be. 
But as long as they're peddling Bible verses, we go, that's the right thing, and we just consume that and think that it's going to be good for us. So can we be surprised then that we meet so many people, maybe you don't, maybe it's just me, I'll say it for me personally, that I, can I be surprised that I meet so many people who are deeply angry or have some kind of serious phobia in their life about race or gender or some other religion, yet they claim with their mouth that Jesus is not only their savior, which that's a claim you can kind of make without necessarily aligning Jesus' thoughts with your thoughts, but they claim him as Lord. How does that work? How do we claim Christ as Lord and then be diametrically opposed to his ideas? In any era of history, if a person claimed the name of a king or an emperor as their Lord, yet with their life they went to war with that person's ideas and priorities, there's a label for a person like that. They're called a traitor. Yet, in 2021, from what I can tell, we have churches who are composed of people who claim Jesus with their words, but who are actually living out a war against his ideas and priorities. The author Kristen DeMay said this about evangelicalism of today in her book, Jesus and John Wayne. She said, among evangelicals, High levels of theological illiteracy mean that many quote-unquote evangelicals, because that's very hard to define today, they hold views traditionally defined as heresy in the church, calling into question the centrality of theology to evangelicalism in general. We just don't know the Bible that well. And we're pretty willing, as long as we like the person who's standing on stage, to more or less adopt whatever ideas they tell us we should adopt. I've wondered many times in the past, if I were to actually preach heresy to you, would you know? Would it even hit your radar? Or would you go, oh, that's a new idea. That sounds cool. Let's try that now. We have to know God's word. I understand that what I'm saying to you is somewhat of an indictment, but this is the way that we build a bridge to a lot of people around us who are living out a thing that they are calling Christianity that doesn't have a Christ at the center of it. We're not going to be able to do that if we don't know God's word. So I want to just do this. Maybe this will be fun for you. We're going to play a quick game, okay? I have five stories that we're going to put on the screen. And of these five stories, three of them are in your Bible. Two of them are not. I'm not going to tell you what they are beforehand. I'm going to give you a chance to tell me. If you're brave enough, some of you are right now. You're just going to sit on your hands and you're not even going to participate. That's fine. That's between you and the Lord. Those of us who participate, I think we're going to have a good time. So I'm just going to quickly read through these really fast. First, I want you to consider this one. This is King Og. We have that one. Yep, the giant who slept in an iron bed 13 and a half feet long. Maybe it's in the Bible, maybe it's not. Number two. Onesimus, the runaway slave who likely went on to become the second bishop in Ephesus. Number three, Kagaz the prophet who God used to judge the city of Bathsheba. Number four, Zelophehad's daughters, Mela, Noah, Hagla. Let's throw out a prayer for Hagla. I need a girl with Hag in her name. That's not good. Milka and Tirzah who begged God to change his law and then he did change his law. Number five, Junia the silversmith who forged the nails used to crucify the apostle Peter upside down. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to ask you to be brave if you would and participate a little bit. Maybe this will shake you awake. King Og the giant who slept in an iron bed 13 and a half feet long. If you think that is a story in your Bible, would you raise your hand? Okay. Show us. Yep, that's Deuteronomy 3. He's the last giant king in the Old Testament. I don't know why he's the last one, but he's it. There were no more after him. That's in the scriptures. Okay, number two, Onesimus, the runaway slave, who likely became the second bishop of Ephesus. Again, raise a hand if this is in the Bible. Show us. Yep, that's the letter to Philemon. The apostle Paul wrote to Philemon about Onesimus, the slave, and said he's been saved now. I'm sending him back to you as a brother in Christ, not as a slave to be lorded over any longer. Number three, Kagaz, the prophet who God used to judge the city of Bathsheba. Anybody think this one is in the Bible? You're probably picking up on the pattern at this point. Show us. 
Yeah, it's not. I made the word Kegaz up and Bathsheba was a person, not a city. All right. Now, last one here, because you know that two of these are false. So if the next one's true, then the last one's false. If the next one's false, the last one's true. So they're going to both show up at the same time here. Zelophehad's daughters, Mela, Noah, Hagla, Milcah, and Tirzah, who begged God to change his law, and he did. If you think that one's true and number five is false, put a hand up for me. Show us. Numbers 21. Crazy story. Moses has just handed down the law of God to God's people. There's a hierarchical, patriarchal system of how names pass down through sons. Zelophehad has five daughters. None of them are married. They come to Moses and say, hey, according to this ruling that you made today, we're going to lose everything we had. Yet our father was faithful and zealous for the Lord and just happened to not have any sons. Is that right? Will you please appeal to God? Moses goes before God and God says, yeah, they're right. Let's make an adjustment to those clauses. And then Moses hands back down a law that's a little bit different. Pretty cool. Uh, Junia is an apostle in the New Testament. There's a silversmith in Acts chapter 19. You wouldn't probably crucify somebody with silver nails because they probably wouldn't hold up a human body. So there's some reasons why number five is not true. But here's what's interesting to me. Okay, I know some of those are more obscure texts. But if you were to read the Bible in a year, and there's about nine million different ways you can find out how to do that online. You could even start right now. You don't have to wait till January 1 of 2022. But if you were to read the Bible through in a year, you would probably pick up one or two of those stories that you've never heard before. The Bible is not a secret text. The Bible, we're not living in 1516 Europe where only the priest can read it and it's only in Latin and you don't have access to it. You carry it around with you all the time. There's probably one soaked in Kool-Aid in the floorboard of your minivan right now, okay? I'm just saying from experience, I have a six-year-old. The Bible may not always be easy to understand, but there are so many tools available to us that help with that. Commentaries you can buy. Biblehub.com, totally free. I use it every week. PreceptAustin.com, a compilation of amazing sermons and commentaries verse by verse. Every translation is now available for free through apps or online as recorded audio. You could listen to the Bible while you do other stuff. You can even listen to the Bible spoken out loud over hip-hop beats by a group called Streetlights. They're available in lots of places. I mean, there are ways to do this thing where you can digest it and you can get it into your life. But here's what's not good about this. Bible illiteracy that we're dealing with. It's not just that we're disappointing each other or we should be better Christians. That's not the point I'm trying to make at all. The output of this, the way that it works itself out in our lives is that when we don't know our Bibles, we have to learn how to be Christians from other people instead of Jesus. And I think we don't. I think we don't know our Bibles and I think we generally don't care. Second, we are spiritually unformed or malformed. In the history of the church, in its 2,000 and however many years that it's existed, you and I, as Western, late modern Christians are practicing the least spiritual version of following Jesus that has ever existed. Even in more charismatic or expressive veins of Christianity, some of you may come from that world to this world where you are now, much of what is called spiritual, even in that setting, is totally pragmatic. It's easily explained. It's generally very flat. It's boring. It's predictable. It's uninspired. We have figured out how to express all the gifts of the Holy Spirit in ways that are humanistic, that just revolve around our own humanity and our own happiness. We pray human prayers about human problems, and then we get up and we go about our lives, and we use logic and we use skill and we use effort and other highly esteemed human qualities and never actually expect God to show up and do any of the things that we asked him to. Theologian Donald Whitney wrote this in one of his books on spiritual formation. He said, too much attention to a particular sin or sins or too little attention to communion with God two things that often occur in tandem, inevitably shrivel the soul of a Christian. We are unformed. We know very well what Jesus wants us to lay down. You've probably heard that language before. 
but we don't know so much about what you're actually supposed to do when you're a Christian. And I think some of our most established religious churches, maybe even our denominations in the West, are all about what Dallas Willard called gospels of sin management instead of the gospel of Jesus himself. Our discipleship processes have often become so intellectual that we don't even expect to actually learn to do anything that's uniquely Christian. We just expect to download more information in a discipleship setting. We want to know more, we want to study more, we want to ingest more, all ironically in settings that spend way more time trying to explain the Bible to us than actually putting the Bible in front of our faces. And so, for example, when the Bible says something like, love your neighbor as yourself, our instincts drive us toward questions about the verbiage and the phrasing, and we tend to want to parse that out and analyze it and study the language instead of those things driving us to ask someone to actually help us put love into practice or identify who our neighbor might be or literally take steps to approach them in real life. Our category for discipleship is primarily head knowledge, not lived experience. So what do you do? What do you get when you invite people to gather together under the banner of Jesus, a Jesus they don't care that much about, and then load them up every Sunday with impossible expectations for Christian living without ever discipling their spiritual formation? so that they grow into people who actually follow Jesus. Or if that's too high of a bar, maybe just grow into people who even want to follow Jesus. What do you do when that's your formula, when that's what's in the pot cooking? The soup that you get is people with deep emotional ties to a religion that they call Christianity, a religion that they refer to as evangelicalism that may or may not have anything to do with the real Christ. You get a religious establishment that wants to force God's kingdom onto the earth by way of conquest instead of a church that enters into God's kingdom that has already come near in Jesus. You and I, if we want to follow Jesus, not just mentally agree with his teaching, but walk in his footsteps, we are expected to care about people like that. Stewardship will build a bridge between you and I, between people like who love Jesus and want to follow him and people who are more interested in just following the rules. But that bridge will do us no good if we don't actually intend to cross that bridge into a relationship. So let's do it. Let's cross over. Let's be people who can approach the established religious people in our lives and let's try to connect those people to Jesus directly because we're not going to reach them if we try to pit our thought leaders against their thought leaders. It's not going to happen. We're not going to reach them by appealing to the pragmatic results even of our ministry. When the way of Jesus reaches someone lost, the religious establishment will disqualify that reality by labeling the method as a moral compromise. They would be more concerned with the way that you did it than what you got done by way of what you did. We will not reach them even by simply being loving and warm. This is where hospitality and generosity will not be the most effective tools to interact with a person who's deeply religious because the religiously established are already uniquely equipped to navigate hospitality, to navigate generosity without ever making their inner person available for influence. They know how to do that. They know how to play the game. They have to live like that in order to survive and excel in their own churches. So we have a chance to call a religious person to eternal life with our own direct stewardship. Stewardship of them, of the life that they either are or are not living internally. Stewardship of God's word directly. Stewardship of God's spirit experienced. Stewardship of God's son. That a person would meet him and be saved. So I'll leave you with this. A set of points and counterpoints that I think will prepare you to interact with the people who are religiously established in your life. And these are concepts that originated with a guy named Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York. I've updated and tweaked the language a little bit to fit our context. So, quickly, we'll hammer through these. If you want to try to write these down, you can. They're going to get a little longer as we go. So you might just snap a picture if it's something that you're really wanting to hang on to or come back and check out the live stream later on. First is this. Religion tells us 
that God accepts us because we obey him. The gospel says that I obey God because he accepts me. It's the foundation of the difference between these two positions and the order of operations matters. Next, religion says that I am motivated to obey God because I am afraid of him and because I am ultimately insecure in my standing with him. The gospel says that I am motivated to obey because I live with grateful joy. I have much to give away because I'm not worried about my standing with God. Next, religion informs us that criticism should infuriate or devastate me because I can't handle seeing myself as anything other than a good person. When you threaten that, you threaten the core of who I am. But the gospel means that I don't need to think of myself as a good person because my identity is not based on my performance. I can handle criticism. You're not telling me anything I don't already know about myself. Next, religion says that I owe God 10% of everything that I have. I must give 10% of my income to the church or else I risk God's wrath against me. And I may give reluctantly, but I am too afraid to not give at all. The gospel means that I can give generously and freely to the church, to the poor, to missionaries, to clinics, to schools, etc., because I believe that everything that I have belongs to God, and I cannot outgive him. And then finally, religion means that I secretly swing between pride, which means I'm unsympathetic to other people's failures, and self-loathing, which means I think I'm a failure myself. My inner identity is fluid, it is extreme, and it is volatile. The gospel means that, yes, I'm sinful, but I'm also accepted by Jesus. It means that I'm worse than you think I am, but I'm also more loved than I usually believe that I am. In Christ, I neither swagger nor snivel. These are the truths that will help challenge the religiously established people in your lives. These concepts are the starting point for gently beginning this conversation with the people around you who are devoted to morality or external righteousness, but don't actually know Jesus. You can see from these concepts how lifeless religion is on its own. These statements, these ideas form the inner reality of a religious person. And for that reason, I believe that religion is the most dangerous form of idolatry because it is both socially justifiable, other people will only tell you it's good, and it completely consumes your life. To be successful in the religious establishment, you have to be all in, which makes it very hard to get all the way out into mercy. I also believe that empty, established religion is our enemy's greatest accomplishment, that we would get close enough to Jesus to believe that we have him, but miss the heart of his life and death and resurrection, which is love. So our call as followers of Jesus in our evangelism, in the way that we share the good news, is to cultivate life in others. And that starts with us being people for whom it is all about Jesus, and it ends when that becomes our rallying cry that we extend even to our brothers and sisters who are living their lives in the doldrums of established religion. So I want to pray that we would be those kinds of people, and I would ask that you pray with me. Father, some names come to mind for me right now. People who I know, people who I care about and have cared about for a long time, who seem to be living in a way that's like a kind of death. The weight, the burden, the fear, the anxiety that drives them into Christian practice, it's devastating. And I know that you know this, God. You've known people from the beginning who've been more about trying to get it right than knowing you. What we want to be here is a group of people who can tell a different story. We want to be people who can willingly endure and have patience with those who are so staunchly religious that they feel like our ideological opponents, that they feel almost positioned against us, even though they would claim the same Jesus that we do. 
I ask God that we would not be militant, but that we would be prepared. You would help us to know the difference. I ask God that our posture would be that of humility, that we would be able to speak the truth in love and never unwilling to only speak the truth without love. Jesus, make us like you. Please teach us from your example. We love you. We trust you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.